Welcome to Short Course, episode 82, for November 11th, 2022. I'm your host, Ben Barry. I want to start tonight with a few corrections from the last episode. Um, relatively minor things, but I wanted to, to set the record straight on a few things that uh, either I realized uh, listening to the recording or that was pointed out to me afterward. And feel free to reach out to me if you hear me misstate anything. I, I want to be correct, so... If I get something wrong, send me an email, let me know, and I'll, I'll correct it just like these. One thing that I over overlooked the, the detail on was I, I said that Sherwin was appointed president and that Kevin Collins became the new Area 3 director. That was the case at the time of the July vote to suspend the members, but the actual sequence of events was that in the fall of 2021, when Sherwin became president at the time, the election had already happened for his replacement as Area 3, and Matt Hopkins had been elected, and so he was appointed to Area 3 ahead of the, the actual January 1st date that his term would have started. And so he began his elected term January 1st uh, and did step down before the, the suspensions happened uh, because he got a job across the country, and now he's in Area 6, which is good for us. Uh, the second thing was I did slightly misstate that Pat Brown was reinstated immediately. Technically, he was reinstated at the end of the month, so nine or ten days after the time of the meeting. Uh, he also reached out to me and said that he has been reinstated fully, so there is no issue with him running for office. Um, I don't exactly understand how the, the wording of the bylaw that prohibits running for office interacts with the, the 413 suspension bylaw, but he said that is that is that is what he's been told. And so it's as though he were never suspended in the first place, which is at least the right thing in, in one of the five cases. One other thing that I didn't realize at the time was he did post his response, the letter that he wrote to the board that, as I mentioned, was a part of getting his suspension reversed. He did post that. Uh, it's on Instagram. I'll include the link in the in the show notes for this episode. And I mean, I will say his letter broadly follows the same contours as as Derek's letter, saying basically there's no evidence. I haven't been shown anything that I did, and so if you don't have anything on me, then you should reverse reverse the suspension. And obviously, ironically, Pat got got off with. No punishment, and Derek got five years. But uh, the the letter is worth reading, and like I said, I'll include the uh, a link in the show notes. As for new information, since I recorded last, um, so I, I record these Thursday night, published them Friday, and Friday after the last one went up, the the actual board minutes were were released, and they had a number of topics. It was you know it wasn't just a sort of meeting focused on the, the the suspensions, although they were voted on at the end. But reviewing the minutes, um, I did, you know, I, again, like I called out for uh, Chad Stanton, it, I did see that the vote to suspend or to ban Joe for a year uh, was an eight to one vote. So Rick Steele did vote against, which again, you know, it's, it's a, it's an eight to one vote, but at least he, at least he registered his disagreement. On the other hand, the thing that I found surprising and I think a lot of people have been disappointed in is the fact that this was the first meeting 
that Yimin Lin, the newly elected USPSA president, uh, it was the first meeting where he was serving as that role. At least I can't quite tell from the the ones from early October. It just says USPSA president. It's not clear if that was Sherwin or, or Yimin, but this is the first set of minutes where clearly Yimin is acting as president and Sherwin is is no longer involved. And I know I, like many others, were curious to see how he would react. I mean, he ran on a platform of keep USPSA fun. You know, what, what does that mean? What is, there, there were a lot of sort of vague statements, but it wasn't clear how he would come down. Aside from the infamous, we should have a code of conduct because practical shooters are like NBA players, which obviously is nonsense. But what his options were, it appears on, uh, on this vote was he could vote yes, he could vote no, or he could abstain. And I think almost anybody could make a solid case for him abstaining. He wasn't involved. He, he, didn't, he wasn't in all the discussions about what each person did. Who knows if he's actually seen any evidence, if, if the evidence has even been compiled in one central place. I kind of, I personally suspect that it hasn't. I think he, he probably doesn't have um, a, a full picture, at least to the degree that the rest of the board members who've been in all the meetings have. So to me, it was a pretty straightforward case. He could have, he could have just abstained. The vote would have been eight to zero. But for both Joe Rutkowski and Derek Lewis, the new president, Yeeman Lin, voted yes to ban them. And I don't, I can't really understand why. The only explanation that makes sense is it's some kind of strategic vote where he's trying to stay on the good side of the board and, you know, pretend like he's going along with their agenda, or maybe he really is going along with their agenda. I mean, from this one meeting, it certainly seems like he's falling in lockstep with them. And so it certainly as someone who was hoping that as a, as a fresh face on the board, he might at least not jump on the bandwagon and vote yes to these things that, you know, he might abstain or register a no vote of disagreement. Um, we didn't get that. We got, we got him, whether it's just following the crowd or some kind of, again, voting tactically, he, he voted yes on, on both of the bands, despite what appears to be no real reason to, uh, again, no matter what he had voted, it wouldn't have changed the outcome. And so he could have just voted his conscience. He could have voted, he could have abstained, or maybe he really does, you know, he's seen enough that he thinks the, these bands are worth it. But if he has, then he should share what convinced him the proof that convinced him with the rest of the members because what it looks like is we elected this guy and he's he's just joining the cabal for lack of a better term so that was disappointing i mean i'm glad they they published the roll call vote and we get to see where things shook out but for anyone hoping that yemen would be a, an outsider it's a certainly not a good start which brings me to the main topic for today, which is something that I have been trying to figure out how to discuss as a part of running for Area 6 and, and how to characterize my, my candidacy is what my platform per se is. There are certain issues that I feel strongly about, like reversing these unjustified bans, unless there's evidence presented that justifies them say, rolling back some of the gear changes that 
go very much against the stock gun ethos of production, raising the the production magazine capacity to 15. Sure, I have feelings about all these things. If I could advocate for them, I, I certainly would. But I'm also realistic that coming in, I will be one vote out of nine, likely in a minority. I will not necessarily have any ability to set the agenda. And so I don't necessarily have the ability to make changes at the board level. Now, obviously, I, I would have control over the Area 6 match, and so I, I have opinions about that, and I would have some ability to make changes there. But in terms of actually coming in and having a, a, you know, a slate of proposals that I would get passed, I'm realistic enough to know that that's not, that's not the way things will work. A lot of people have come to the board full of energy and ideas and gotten nothing done and been one term and out. And I, I don't, I've seen that happen and I don't want to fall into that trap. Now that said, I fully expect over the the coming six, seven months until the election, I'll be talking about some of these ideas that I would like to see if I had the opportunity and get member feedback on those and see if they resonate and see if there's a mandate and if I can build some consensus with some of the other members of the board about making progress on some of these things. But I don't want to promise something that falls on deaf ears and goes nowhere and I waste my time and political capital trying to push. I'm That's not the point. But what I can say is that I will use judgment and values to try and understand whether a proposal moves USPSA closer to or further away from the goals that we have stated. And obviously part of that is getting agreement on what the goals and the values of the organization are. I think one thing that I've been vocally in disagreement with the the current practice is, is the idea, for example, that the goal of nationals should be maximizing the number of people who can attend. I, I think that if that is the, the value, the underlying purpose, the goal that you are pursuing, then the current policy of having nationals scheduled the way they are, where there are so many of them is possibly a good way to achieve that. But I fundamentally think that that is, that is not the right premise to take. And so fundamentally there's there's a disconnect there where i think that it's it's maybe it's the right route but it's to the wrong destination and this is the way that i look at everything in the sport i don't accept the idea that well this is just the way that we've always done it and so we should keep doing it now if there's some reason that something became the practice over the over the years the 180 sweeping rules safety things like that the way that we treat dummy rounds in the safe area, right? That, that might be a rule that's been on the books for decades, but understanding the reason it was put on the rule book and then saying, is that still relevant today? With that kind of stuff, the answer is yes. And so there's no reason to change it. Another way to, to look at this would be for any given rule or policy or decision, if this weren't the precedent, if we were looking at this with fresh eyes, how would we handle this? Is the rule that we have today the rule that we would pick if that weren't the current status quo? Now, obviously, a factor that you have to weigh in with this is the fact that, you know, especially when it comes to gear and equipment, people do have a significant amount invested in 
in their stuff, in their in their guns and their their associated equipment and calibers and and reloading presses and everything. So there is a weight that has to be given to that current investment, but that weight can't be infinite. The it it, it must be a factor in the discussion, but we also have to look at for someone coming into the sport new if they don't have any guns that shoot 40 cal well it doesn't really look like there's much of a reason to buy one right now sure the guys that have existing 40 cal guns yeah they have their presses set up for them they want to keep shooting them but for someone coming in new as that blank slate we have to think about it through their eyes as well and i think this is this is also a a larger concern that i have I have misgivings about the the this idea of a, a survey system that pulls the membership because we also need to have some consideration in the in the discussion for those people who are not yet members yet. You know, there might be things that are good for the existing membership, but don't necessarily help the sport to continue to flourish and grow. We wouldn't want to, and this is obviously a, a bit of an extreme example and a caricature, but we, we wouldn't want to set up a, a set of rules that satisfies all the current members who are slowly losing interest, having families, getting old and dropping off at the cost of also making the sport viable for new people coming in. We, we need to represent the voice, not just of the current members, but of, of the people who will be coming into the sport and need a place to get started. I mean, that's where the, the original... IDPA, IPSC split happened. The The fact that everything was becoming a gear race with limited and open and somebody that just wanted to come shoot a match with a out-of-the-box Beretta 92 or Glock, there, there was no place for that. And I'm sure there were other things at play, but in 96, IDPA splits off and then sure, wouldn't you know it, a couple of years later, 99, 2000, we get production in single stack. Now, that was happening at, at the international level as well, so that was being spearheaded by IPSC, but... But the idea there is you can't just write rules for the people who already have the gear that are already in the sport. You have to take into account those other things. That said, to, to get back to what I'm saying about values, this is where I think analyzing things and saying not just this is the way it's always been done, this is the tradition, but if things if we were making the rule today, what would we do? And so a, a perfect example is why is the magazine length limit for limited 140 millimeter mags? I actually don't know. I mean, my I believe that it's related to the length of a 10 round single stack 45 ACP mag. That that was that was what was you were allowed to use the the 10 rounders back in the single stack 45 ACP days of of USPSA. But I, I don't actually have any any proof on that, any documentation. But that that seems likely. And so it's interesting that we've sort of carried that through and that's become the de facto standard, even though, you know, when you look at IPSC, they they don't have anything, as far as I'm aware, about 140 millimeter mags. For them, their version of sta- their, their version of limited standard is just about the gun has to fit in the box with the magazine. Some people like that rule. Some people don't. I, I'm not saying that that rule is perfect, but I am saying that they have chosen something that's that's based on something definable that hey this is the box that your gun has to fit in does that box make sense i don't know but that's a different discussion so to me the idea that 10 round 45 acp magazines 
became the standard and then we've just never touched it. We've never discussed it. And now the most popular division in USPSA, Carry Optics, has inherited that even though there's never been any kind of practical standard that a 23 round 140 millimeter magazine is de facto what is used for duty or self-defense or, or anything like that. It, it has no it has no practical basis. It's just one of these legacies that's been carried forward and carried forward. And so to me, that's where evaluating the history and saying, where did this rule come from? And does that justification that was used to make it still make sense today? Obviously, another one that's near and dear to my heart is the idea of 10 round production. People will make arguments about, oh, you know, the extra reloads, it, it emphasizes stage planning and, and all this. But if you go back and read the, the sources, you read front sight from 99 and 2000 when this discussion was happening, when production was originally proposed, it didn't have a capacity limit, but it was during the American assault weapons ban. And so it was, it was meant to be a, an entry point for people who were buying a gun coming into the sport six years into the assault weapons ban and were buying a Glock or a Beretta 92 or what have you. And it would come from the gun store with a bunch of 10 round magazines. Yeah. Could you get pre-ban high cap quote unquote, you know, 17 rounders you could, but the idea of, of limiting, limiting it to 10 at the time was, well, 10 is the law of the land. Let's just make production that. But 2004, the assault weapons banned sunsets. You can buy new 17 rounders for all your production guns. And we've just never gone back and discussed it. It has just become so ingrained. It's just unquestioned. And to me, that's, that's not a good reason. To me, you should look at what were the justifications? What was the reasoning? What was the process that caused some decision to be made as best as you can gather it, whether that's talking to people, reading written down sources, like, like the, the old front site, you know, letters to the editor and the discussion there about it, finding those, those sources and trying to figure out where did this rule come from? And does that logic still make sense today? Just to, to throw out another example it has been the tradition for as long as I've been in the sport that the area six matches in the spring. And I believe that has its roots in the days when it was most commonly held down in Florida. And obviously Florida is a, a more pleasant place to have matches in the winter and, and early spring. And that that's why they have their state match in January and the Florida open in February. This is, this is what they're known for. But if that's the reason, if just that tradition of, well, area six has always been in the spring, so we got to keep it in the spring. Sorry. I just, I don't subscribe to that. Now, if there's a good reason to keep it in the spring, I I'm, I'm open to that, but I want to understand the values, the underlying reasoning for the way these things were done in the past so that we can evaluate if they still apply today. I mean, one of the things about having area six in the spring is you get a lot of participation from people across the country. But for the people who are in Area 6 that want to try, you know, maybe they've won their state championship and they want it, but they don't see themselves being viable at, at a national championship yet, but they want to make a run for, for their area champion. Well, if you're trying to win Area 6 champion, you better start training in February because if the match is in April or May, then you, you better be trained up for it. And so at that point, again, it gets to this idea of, what is the goal of this? Who is this match for? Is it 
designed to get the most people in because more match fees means more money. Whereas if it were later in the year scheduled around the same time as, as some of the other area matches, you might get a lower attendance, but you would get more people from area six and fewer people traveling from outside the, the area. These are the kinds of questions that I'm talking about, trying to, to understand these values and say, who is the area six match for? Is it for the country? Is it meant to be a mini nationals? Is it meant to be a, a, a spring throwdown, a, a little early season check-in, see where you are compared to some other national talent? Or is it meant to be the championship for everyone in area six, primarily to come together and duke it out against each other? And if folks from other areas want to come shoot, then then that's great too. And I don't know, I, I have opinions, I have ideas, but I certainly would not rule based on those alone, you know, I would, I would want to get feedback from people and hopefully, and I'm sure I probably will get quite a lot of feedback on some of these things that I've said, but that's the point is every decision is based on reasons and values and goals and judgment. And I think those things deserve to be reevaluated because a lot of them were made based on a set of values that might've been true five, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And, and if that reasoning still applies today, great. Don't change it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But if the reasoning that was used for any one of these things that I've discussed or 20 others I could name, if the reasoning from 20 years ago is no longer valid, then we should change it. Just saying, well, it's the way it's always been done. Again, does not hold water to me. I think issues should be evaluated based on the historical context of the decision they were made in and whether that context is still relevant to today. And so that's one thing that I can promise is I will not just say, well, you know, it's, it seems to be working. I don't want to touch it. If, if, if it is actually working, if it's not broken, if there's nothing to fix, then, then I won't. But I think having the discussion and saying, why was this done this way? And does that logic still make sense? That is key to the way I think about virtually everything in this sport and everything in general. And so that is a lens that I will apply to any given topic that, that comes up. It's hard to turn that into a punchy campaign slogan or put it on a sign or a, an Instagram meme, but I thought it was worth taking the space I have here on the podcast to, to try and lay that out. Well, that wraps up this episode of Short Course. My email is podcast at barryshooting.com. Talk to you next time.